1209, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Eric, you know what I did yesterday afternoon? My, my, my swim wife, home? Well, my swim home. No, actually, I don't know. It's, it's sort of poor like heck. Um, although, where, where I live, to the north of the city, got a lot less rain than I think where I used to live. Yeah. But, um, no, my, my wife had uh, a rare evening off. We went to see a movie. We went to see Incredibles, too. All right, what'd you think? Loved it. Loved it. Now, I'm a big fan of Incredibles 1. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and, and I'm not, I'm, I mean, it was one of those things where Incredibles 1 was such a, just a complete out of the box, you had no idea what was going to happen next. So it would have been tough to top it, but the animation has improved dramatically. It was a great two hours. Had a blast. So, oh, I mean, good. it's, you know, a lot of times you go to these movies and you're kind of disappointed. No, I was not at all. And I, I'm obviously not alone because it did, it's doing stupid box office money. It's just huge. Pixar does well. They usually create a very good movie. And, and this, this is, it picks up right where the, literally right where the last movie left off. Oh, and cool. it's kind of like there, there's been, and it's just very good. So I highly recommend it. And it's, um, maybe a little bit intense for real young kids. Um, but, but still, it's just there, there's stuff on all sorts of different levels. So I highly recommend it. Right, so, all right, if you're looking for a place to go, check that out. All right, as I'm looking at the show today, I have to admit, we're talking about a lot of heavy-duty topics, at least for a good portion of of the show. And I wanted to start off, before we get to the heavy-duty topics, and matter of fact, our lead-off topic is going to be a political ad, unlike many that I have seen. Leah Vukmir, who is running for the Republican nomination to challenge Tammy Baldwin in November for U.S. Senate. Um, she's in a very, very tightly, contest, heavily contested, tight race between herself and Kevin Nicholson. Leah Vukmir has been a state assembly person and a state senator from the Brookfield area, very, very well known to people in this area. It is a very contested race. Um, Kevin Nicholson, who is challenging her, is trying to, you know, put on the mantle of, of outsider and he, he's running a very, I would say, Trumpian sort of campaign. I don't mean that good or bad. But, but he's out there, he's kind of like a flamethrower, and I, I don't know right now how this race is going to turn out. But uh, Senator Vukmir has come out with her first ad. It is a 30-second ad. If you haven't seen it, yeah, it certainly is one of these ads that gets a lot of attention. We're going to play the audio of it. I'm going to describe the video in just a couple minutes, but if you want to see the ad and you haven't as of yet, if you simply text me the word ad, A-D, to 414-799-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, I'll send you a copy of the ad. We're going to talk about this in just a couple minutes. So while people are doing that and getting ready for it, I, I did want to start off, and again, we're going to be doing some heavy lifting today, and I understand it's a rainy Tuesday afternoon, but it's just kind of the nature of the way topics are breaking down. But I did want to start off with just a, a good news story and a shout-out to, of all places, Kraft Heinz, which is, the, you know, the like the Heinz Ketchup Company and the Kraft Company, and they're, they are now merged. Um, on this program, from time to time, we have discussed the ludicrousy of various local communities that have cracked down on kids' lemonade stands. Matter of fact, a couple weeks ago, we talked about a story. It was kind of out of the Denver area, and you might remember it. There was an art fair that was going on, I want to say, over Memorial Day weekend. And you had a couple young kids who lived across the street from the art fair. And what they did is they set up a lemonade stand. And so they were selling lemonade. And actually, they weren't even using the proceeds to uh, for themselves. They were raising money for some local charity. All right? So it's, it's a good cause. 
Well, you have some of the vendors who were in the park, which is where the art fair was going on. They got upset at this kid's lemonade stand. Now, the kids didn't take out a permit or anything like that, but they were across the street. And the vendors got upset that the kids were running this little lemonade stand. And I'd say it was mom and pop, but it wasn't even mom and pop. It was little kids, five, six, seven years old. And so the vendors complained. They called the cops. The police in Denver, with way too much time on their hands, responded immediately and ended up shutting the thing down because it did not have a permit. I understand there's some people who think rules are rules, and of course they had to do it. My response would be, well, okay, you get that kind of call in, and that's one where maybe you put that complaint onto the bottom of the pile and you get around to it, oh, two or three days later when the lemonade stand is already gone. In any event, Kraft Heinz has announced that they are going to get this personally. They will personally defend and pay for any fines the children get for trying to sell lemonade this summer. Now, Kraft Heinz makes Country Time Lemonade. That's their brand. And so this is what the spokesperson said. We recently came across a story of a kid getting her lemonade stand shut down for legal reasons, and we thought this had to be an urban myth. After looking into it and seeing even more instances, we realized these weren't myths. They were real stories of this type of stuff happening. So the company has decided, they said, you know, we were, you know, surprised and we were shocked that all this was necessary for a child's lemonade stand. So what Kraft Heinz, the people that make Country Time Lemonade, they're saying, here's the deal. Um, We have now created a legal aid, A-D-E, get it, legal aid unit. And we're going to be on hand to help kids and their parents fight any legal woes or fines associated with their lemonade stands. This is what they say. Any child fined for running a lemonade stand without a permit can have his or her parent apply for reimbursement. To apply, simply send us the image of your child's permit or fine with a description of what your lemonade stand means to your child in his or her own words. Each submission will then be reviewed by Country Time Lemonade's team, and if it complies with the terms, the company will cover the permit fee or fine up to $300. Additionally, it will donate up to $500,000 to help kids with their entrepreneurial pursuits next year and beyond. This is what they say. Go ahead, kids. Run your lemonade stands. Country Time Legal Aid is on your side and will protect you. When life hands you outdated laws, Make lemonade and get legal aid, A-D-E. What a brilliant marketing scheme. I I mean, just, look, I I, I understand. I'm I'm not going to say that this is completely philanthropic, but what a brilliant marketing scheme. And I can already see the TV ads. It's going to be, you know, sweet-faced children from all over the country standing in front of their homemade lemonade stand selling country time lemonade, holding up these permits about how they were closed down by the evil communities or whatever. This is a brilliant marketing scheme, and it is going to lead to, you want to talk about buying goodwill, well, it's going to accomplish that. It's going to lead to great 30- and 60-second ads. I mean, you're, and my guess is you're going to start seeing these later this summer because they're going to be saying, hey, You know, when little Sally and Johnny were trying to run their lemonade stand and you had the people at the park across the street try to close them down and the police officers came out, Country Time Lemonade was there to help them out. What a brilliant, 
brilliant marketing plan. It's going to lead to great spots. And it's a good news kind of story because, again, I just if you're a lemonade vendor at one of these parks and you feel threatened by the kids that are selling lemonade across the street in front of their house, you are the one. You're the one that has the problem. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Leah Vukmir ad. If you want to see it, it's only 30 seconds. You can text me the word ad, A-D, at 414-799-1620. I will describe it, and we'll play the audio in, in, audio in just a moment. It's 1218. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, as I said at the beginning of the program, the Republican Senate race um, will, will end in early August when the primary election is held. There are two candidates that are running. One is State Senator Leah Vukmir, well-known to people in southeastern Wisconsin. She has been, um, it's not fair to say a career politician. She's a nurse by training. But she has been at the forefront of, I, I think, the conservative renaissance in Wisconsin for you know well over the last decade. The last decade. She was um, one of the senators who, again, stood with Governor Walker when Act 10 was pushed through. She took a lot of heat for it. She clearly has conservative credentials. Um, she is running against Kevin Nicholson, who's sort of a, he, I mean, he's an outsider, new to Republican politics. I think a lot of people know his story. He, he talks about his experience in the military. He also, um, well, the, the knock on him is some people see him as an opportunist, the late convert to the Republican Party. Um, but he's running very much of, of a maverick type of campaign styled a la Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, depending on what poll you look at, and it's tough to tell, but, you know, he certainly has a ton of support. He's also backed by a couple very, very rich out-of-state donors who have put a ton of money into supporting political action groups that have been running ads and things on his behalf. I don't know which way this race is going to, you know, shape out. But uh, Leah Vukmir is out with the first TV ad that her campaign has produced. There's been other TV ads involving her, but those have been from, from like, again, these outside groups. This is a 30-second ad. I'm going to play you the audio of this in a minute. But if you have not seen it, the way that the video works, it starts out focused on, like, an answering machine where um, the voices you're going to hear are threats that somebody is making to her as a result of Act 10. I don't know if this was one of the legitimate calls she had or whether it's a, is, is something that's been mocked up based on a legitimate call she had. But you see the answering machine. Then the camera um, pans over a series of photographs, which is her family photographs. And then the camera focuses on Leah herself, and she she's prominently wearing a cross. So she's got that out there. She, she's wearing a cross. And it's not mentioned in the entire ad, but it certainly gets your attention. She's sitting at this table. There's a big old handgun in a holster that's just sitting there on, on the table. It's a holstered handgun on, on the table. So that's kind of the, the video of all this. Here's the audio of the ad. I know where you live, and I'm going to come for you. You're going to die, and I'm going to be the one who does it. Ever have someone threaten your life for what you believe in? I have. When Scott Walker and I beat the union bosses, cut billions in taxes, and defunded Planned Parenthood, the left couldn't take it. With President Trump, we can do the same in Washington. Standing on principle takes guts. I know what it takes. I'm Leah Vukmir, and I approve this message. And, and, and that's the ad. And again, like I say, the, the visual that goes with it is... 
she she's got a she's got a, a big old handgun that's sitting on on the table next to her, and she's just speaking directly into the camera. All right, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This ad, as you might expect, is getting national attention um, for again playing the the death threats against her. The I would say subtle, but it's not necessarily so subtle. She's got the big old handgun sitting next to her. She's wearing a cross, and, you know, she's talking about a a number of of different things. There's a lot of stuff crammed into a 30-second ad. Here is my question to you. Is this an effective ad, or is this completely and totally over the top? Does it go too far, or is it both effective and over the top? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. All right. Is State Senator Vukmirs, Leah Vukmir, does she help herself with this ad? 414-799-1620. We are back to discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. I will also tell you where I come down on this. Stick around. 1225, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Chris in New Berlin. Chris, good afternoon. Good afternoon. All right. Good ad, bad ad, over the top. What do you think? I think she's got to get a lot together all at once just to make sure all voting blocks are represented. I don't mm-hmm. think there's enough time to hit them all separately. So you've got Christian, family values, Walker, Trump, all in there, and Kevin Nichols with his comment experience. She's got to get a little bit of tough side credentials in there also because uh, he's running on that. So I think it's effective to hit them all at once. Um, and it works for you. Does the, does the fact that there's just this kind of handgun sitting on the desk, is that off-putting to you? No, not really. She's done right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she can hit that voting block also just by having it sit there instead of running a separate ad on that alone. Um, thanks for the call. I, I got to tell you, I agree completely. I think this is a brilliant ad for who it is directed to. Leah Vukmir, is, at this, this is an ad that is directed to Republican primary voters. The, the hesitation that some people have about Leah is that, all right, is she tough enough to run against Tammy Baldwin? And, and clearly, Kevin Nicholson has tried to portray himself as sort of the, the outsider. He's going to be the flamethrower. He's the guy that's going to be tough enough to, to take on Tammy Baldwin. And I think that's the concern that some Republicans have. You know, Leah Vukmir, unquestionably, she has you know great credentials as, as a conservative. But, you know, is she going to be tough enough? Is she going to be willing to be confrontational enough to, to beat Tammy Baldwin, because that's what you're going to need. There's no question about it. And I think this ad, just like Chris was saying, this ad hits all those different things. And it's directed that this isn't directed to the Madison lefties. Their heads are going to explode. This ad is directed to the Republican primary voters more conservative voters than perhaps the overall base that's going to be voting in the general election. But this ad says, both both directly and subtly, first of all, I am not afraid to let people know my positions on a whole myriad of issues, and I'm willing to do it in such a fashion that's going to get people's attention. Um, I, I just think, actually, I think the layout, I think the way it's presented was absolutely brilliant. You've got the whole idea of the death threats, all right? What message does that send? Well, it says that, you know, she's been tested by fire herself. You know, she's come through these political wars. She's stood up. It also reminds people about just the out-of-control reaction you had from some on the left when it came to Act 10. 
Then you've got, again, the, wearing the cross, okay, shows that, you know, she is a person of faith. That's the appeal. You've got the firearm there. It ties in with the whole concept of the death threats. Also shows, as she is, that she's extremely pro-gun. You've got the references to Planned Parenthood. I think if you want to go through a checklist for, you know, how you run an ad directed in a Republican primary, especially in 2018, this is about as close to a perfect ad as you can have. Now, will you run the same type of ad if you happen to win the primary? Well, well, no, no. But right now, I think this is directed clearly at the people who might be voting in August. And to that extent, I think it is nothing short of brilliant. Um, let's see. Here's a text. I thought the ad was very good. Shows she's tough, willing to make tough decisions based on her beliefs and will not be intimidated. Um, yeah. Um, let's see. Here's a text. Uh, Leah, the ad would be better if she were wearing the gun on her waist in her holster, standing with her arms crossed. Well, okay. You, you get, you get the message. The gun is on the table. It sends the message. I think this is a winner. I really, really do. One of the best ads I've seen in a while. It's 1236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, one week from tomorrow. Hundreds of thousands of people will be flocking to Milwaukee's Lakefront Summerfest just around the corner. Gene Miller has a full preview, 7.51 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News. I will be doing my program from Summerfest several of the days. Not down there the first day because there's an early Brewers game, but I'll be down there Thursday of the first week and then... uh, uh, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday of the second week. So looking forward to it. Always love Summerfest. We'll be talking to my friend Don Smiley. Um, hopefully, hopefully we'll get this bad weather out of the, out of our system. Hopefully it'll be Goldilocks weather. You know, not too hot, not too cold. And hopefully these big rainstorms that moved through the area yesterday. Four inches of rain. I know some people were without power till four in the morning. Lots of flooding and of course, MMSD dumping into Lake Michigan. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on in the program. Hopefully, we'll have that all out of our system for a great 11-day run of Summerfest. Okay, everybody by now is familiar with the Sterling Brown situation. Sterling Brown, of course, the rookie player for the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, 2 a.m. January 26th, he is illegally parked outside a 24-hour Walgreens on National Avenue, um, he's gone there to make some sort of purchase. He's with sort of an unnamed friend, as they describe it. He's parked across two handicapped spaces. Milwaukee police officer rolls up, sees him illegally parked, and at, at that point, we're, we're then off to the races. Rather than simply issue him a, tar, a parking ticket for illegally parking, there is an encounter between the officer and between Brown. The officer calls for assistance for reasons that I think still are unclear, it's like the entire police district shows up. You've got like seven or eight police cars that are there. You have supervisors that are on the scene. The confrontation escalates, and at one point in time, Sterling Brown is tased by the officers. There's now video that shows one of the officers kind of standing, not kind of, standing on his ankle. I don't get the idea that he's really stomping on his ankle, but he's holding him down. He's left on the ground for a couple minutes. He's ultimately handcuffed. He's taken into custody. He's taken, you know, downtown and he sits in jail for several hours till he's ultimately released. There was not a serious injury here. I mean it's not he was playing basketball what the next day. So I mean it's not like he's in the hospital for weeks at a time. 
It's not like there's any sort of permanent physical injury. But nevertheless, he's tased. He's arrested. He's taken into custody. And you have this entire reaction by the police department, which has acknowledged that the officers behaved in an improper fashion. And a handful of the officers have, in fact, you know, were nobody was fired, but some were subjected to various types of discipline. The dazzling detail, I guess, in the criminal complaint is that after this incident occurred, at least one of the officers involved, allegedly, according to the criminal complaint, took to social media, at which point I stopped the discussion and let out a heavy sigh. <laughs> because, how, you know, how, how many people take bad situations and somehow decide to make them worse by jumping on Twitter or going to Facebook or whatever? And at least one of the officers allegedly was posting a number of different derogatory things about Sterling Brown and mocking this particular situation. Again, taking a bad thing and, and ending up making it worse. So today the news is that there was a federal civil rights suit that was filed against the city of Milwaukee, um, the chief of police, Alfonso Morales, in his official capacity. Now you might say, well, why would you sue Morales? Because he wasn't the chief at the time. That was Ed Flynn. Well, he, he's being sued because of the discipline and a challenge to the discipline he imposed. So the idea was he didn't react appropriately enough. And then it lists two of the sergeants and one, two, three, four, five, six officers, including one of the officers who was at least allegedly all over social media with several derogatory things. All right. So that that's that's where it stands now. Now I'm kind of intrigued by this lawsuit because well, if you go towards the, you know, the, the back of this and you, you know, they ask for, you know, what, you know, what do you want? You know, the allegations are that the conduct of the individual defendants was unlawful, extreme, malicious, outrageous and intentional. The conduct was intended to cause Mr. Brown unnecessary and severe physical and psychological and emotional injuries. Um Wherefore, the lawsuit, and again, I'm looking at the last couple pages here. First of all, it asks for compensatory damages for the violation of Mr. Brown's rights as set forth in an amount to be determined at the trial of the matter. So it's asking for him to be compensated for what happened to him, but it doesn't specify a particular amount. It also goes on to ask for punitive damages um, and attorney's fees. So here's my question. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, the city of Milwaukee is self-insured. There, There is no insurance company that is involved here. Over the last couple years, what are the numbers? The city has paid out roughly $22 million in police misconduct lawsuits since 2015. And that means it is the taxpayers that are paying that. The city has authorized about, this is the Journal Sentinel reporting, about $26 million in borrowing to pay for police misconduct settlements and judgments since 2008, but $22 million since 2015. So here is my question, because it is the taxpayers of the city of Milwaukee who pay this out. This is an insurance company. It, it comes 
essentially directly from the taxpayers, one way or the other. What is Sterling Brown entitled to? Is it a dollar? Is it $10? Is it $100? Is it a million dollars? Is it $50 million? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think we're all pretty much familiar with the facts. Most of us have seen the videos. Now you have this lawsuit. You know, what are the dollar amounts that he is, in fact, entitled to? We'll discuss. 414-799-1620. But what is your reaction? How much money should he get as a result of this situation that occurred back in January? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1243, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, through an attorney, Sterling Brown has now filed a federal civil rights lawsuit. Fine, it alleges that his constitutional rights were violated by the behavior of the Milwaukee Police Department. Okay, and then it asks for compensatory and punitive damages. My question is, all right, here you have a basketball player. Let us assume for the sake of argument that he was improperly detained, wrongfully arrested, tased, and uh, then taken to jail. There was not any sort of permanent type of injury. It's not like he was hospitalized. I think he was playing ball the next night. But nevertheless, for anybody, I think the idea, if you were wrongfully arrested and spending a few hours in jail, getting hit with a taser, you wouldn't like that at all. So what's the appropriate remedy in a case like this? Do we give him $100? Do we give him $5,000? Do we give him $5 million? Do we give him $50 million? 414-799-1620. Our text line exploding. Well, Jeff, seeing that everybody from the chief to the mayor apologized many times, the payout will be huge. That is, in fact, guaranteed. Here's another text. No money. You don't take your hands out of your pockets. You are going to get taken to the ground. No question. Um, another person says, I'd give him a million bucks. Okay? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Barb in Greendale. Barb, you're first. Hello. Yes, I don't think he should get one red cent. Okay, tell me why. Because when the police are wanted and they go, then it's okay. When they stop somebody and arrest them for something, then it's brutality and uh, the race card is played. Well, let me ask you this, Barb. Let, let's say it's not Sterling Brown. Let's say it, it's you or, or me. And, you know, we're illegally parked, and all of a sudden the police roll up, and next thing you know, you've got eight police officers, and somebody's tasered you and taken you to jail, and they ultimately, they determine no charges. I mean, do you think the average person would be entitled to file a lawsuit or no? Uh, No, he was illegally parked. He was breaking the law. And maybe because of past history with individuals in the city of Milwaukee, they felt the need to have more police presence. Mm-hmm. Okay. He didn't take his hands out of his pockets. Why not? Okay. Well, good enough. Thanks to call. Well, I mean, of course, I mean, if if you look at the video, he 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 has his hands in and out of his pockets over over the course of the encounter. All right. So Barb says nothing. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Vincent on the northwest side. Vincent, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon. Jeff. Hi, Vincent. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much uh, Sterling Brown should get from this lawsuit, but I know as a, as a, as a, uh, a citizen of Milwaukee I, and a taxpayer, I am tired of paying out money to individuals <clears throat> for individual police officers and their misconduct. Uh, the fact is is that, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much you, you pay a man for his self-respect, 
and, and, and what he what he is entitled to is a proper investigation and a proper uh, remedy to to those individuals who who, who committed the particular offense against him. And so uh, I, I don't know if it's. And so when you say that, what would when you say proper remedy? Because that is part of the lawsuit. They allege that the chief sort of um, didn't didn't appropriate that, that that the penalties weren't sufficient for the crime. That's part of the. And I'm, I'm using that quotation marks. Um, you know, that's and that's part of the lawsuit that the chief didn't respond appropriately. So, what do, what do you think should happen as a result of the lawsuit? Well, I, well, uh, first of all, whatever uh, amount they they come up with, because he left it blank, so I don't know exactly what they're asking for. Right. But the, but the fact is, is that uh, he's going to be paid, and 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 the taxpayers of this city are going to again pay for police officers who are still on the force. Who are still out here? Who will be back on the streets patrolling, and 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 may commit some more of these incidents. And and and, and they, they they really the financially you don't get you know get any uh, a penalty. They just get some days off it with pay. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it, it to me, uh, uh, whatever Sterling Brown gets, I guess he deserves because the fact is uh, at least he's exposed. The individuals, especially this one who decides to go on uh, uh, social media, social yeah. media. And basically say we want another black uh, athlete to come to town so we can you know do basically do the same thing to him. Yeah, know? if I'm city attorney Grant Langley, I, I do admit that that that, that 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 the social media stuff after this incident happens, I'm, I'm putting my head down and I'm kind of going, oh my goodness, why did you think that was a good idea? Okay, thanks for the call four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. I mean, this is a very this is a very real issue because I mean here here's part of of the thing, this lawsuit. All right, I, I don't think that there's a remedy that can force the chief of police to impose more discipline. The chief of police has already decided the discipline for the, the particular police officers. The, the remedy largely is going to be he's going to get money. Maybe it's punitive damages, and the idea being if you sock, if you sock the city with enough punitive damages, maybe it forces the police chief to... I don't know, change his policy or change the way he looks at things. That, that's the idea. But essentially, we're talking about, in this particular situation, we're talking about money um, that passes between the taxpayers and between the the victim, if you want to consider Sterling Brown to be a victim. And that's what a jury's going to have to decide. How how much? 414-799-1620. Dennis in South Milwaukee. Hi, Dennis. How are you doing, guys? Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Well, the way I look at it, whatever he gets, he probably deserves part of it. But whatever he gets, he should take half that money that he gets, give it back to the to the city of Milwaukee for the police department for training and more safety equipment for the patrol officers. Hmm. So you would like to see him take a, at least a portion of whatever settlement and then give it back to Milwaukee, the, the city? Yes, I would, to help the police department out with more safety equipment and better training. Okay, well, I mean, thanks. I mean, then, of course, given the fact that it's the um, given the fact that it's the city that's going to be giving that money in the first place, if you were going to do that, it might just make sense to forego the, the award and then just say, I, I want to use that. I'm getting a number of texts asking if there's insurance. And, no, my understanding is the, the city of Milwaukee is self-insured, which means – they there's not an insurance company. A lot of times municipalities have insurance companies 
that they'll, you know, they'll kick it over to and they'll have to, you know, like your policy, you have to pay a deductible. And then after that, there's insurance. My understanding with the city of Milwaukee in situations like this is there is no insurance. And, and so this is whatever damage award ultimately is awarded and ultimately paid out. My understanding is that comes from the taxpayers of the city. 414-799-1620. We continue the conversation next. What should he get? 1254, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. One oh eight, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So let's put a cherry on the cake of our discussion of the Sterling Brown case. Here's how I, I look at this. I um I don't see this in a rational world as being a huge dollar type of case. Um the the injury look should he have been tased? Let's let's just assume for the sake of argument that the, the police, there was no reason to tase him, that there was not a basis for arresting him and taking him into custody, and, and we'll assume that. At the same time, this isn't a situation where you have a, a permanent injury. It's not like he was hospitalized. Um, but at the same time, if you want to assume the complaint is accurate, let, let's assume his, his rights were, in fact, violated, and that's worth some compensation. But in a perfect world, this isn't a multi-million dollar case. It, it's just I don't think it, it should be in any stretch or the, of way. So that's my assessment of it. Now, the question becomes, what is, in fact, going to happen? And so even though I look at it and I say I, I just don't see the damages there, I, I also recognize that, well, you're going to have some people that say, look at what the police did, look at some of the things that they did afterwards on this, and other people may very, very well see this as a much larger case. Matter of fact, my guess is there is going to be some some pressure if this case isn't settled, or even if it is settled. I mean, I, my guess is they're looking for millions of dollars. Now, whether they can get it or not, I don't know. Like I say, I don't see it as that type of case, but my guess is... Um, certainly from the perspective of the plaintiffs, they're going to be looking for big dollars. And, of course, what you have to keep in mind is that the, the city of Milwaukee, that's the taxpayers. If you live in the city of Milwaukee, you're ultimately the one that's on the hook, which is why the comments from the mayor from the beginning of this were not, in fact, helpful for this. But, look, here is the one point that, that's moving forward. There have been a number of settlements involving Milwaukee police officers over the course of the last few years. I mean, already more than $20 million. That tells me a couple things. Number one, it tells me that you do have police officers who are proceeding. Again, I think you have to look at this stuff in a case-by-case basis. But the reality is it's the taxpayers that end up paying when there is police misconduct. And to the extent that there is a small percentage of police officers who are the bad apples, the, the chief and the Fire and Police Commission have to get a handle on that. I, I also do think some of the settlements or some of the awards might be a bit large or unnecessarily large, but the bottom line is this is a problem, and there's a cottage industry that's developing about suing the Milwaukee Police Department and either getting verdicts or um, getting you know large settlements, and it, it's something that the chief needs to take into account in trying to figure out what the discipline is going to be and what the training is going to be, because this is the type of thing that can, I, I don't know if it's fair to say bankrupt, but certainly hamstring a community if you're borrowing and spending all this money to try to settle police lawsuits one after another. The Sterling Brown case does not strike me as objectively 
being a big money type of lawsuit, um, even though I, I think that there were mistakes that were made. But by the time this, if it does in fact get to court, don't be surprised if that's precisely what this turns out to be. Just saying. Okay, let's switch gears. It seems when school is in session, on an almost weekly basis, there is some story involving a school that is on lockdown or school is canceled or school is delayed because there has been a threat that has been received. And in almost every situation where there is that threat in advance, it turns out that it's a hoax. That's just the reality. But I understand that from the perspective of school officials and law enforcement authorities, you, you can't take things, yet you have to assume the worst. And I understand also that's what happens in today's day and age is even if the school officials and the police say, we've investigated this particular threat and we don't think there's anything to it, well, what happens is parents make their own decision, and half the time you only have about half the kids that show up anyways because the parents say, well, you know, there's this potential threat that's out there, and even though the cops and school officials say there's nothing to it, I don't want to, I could never live with myself if I let my kid go to school, and it turns out the, the cops um, and the school officials are incorrect, which whenever we talk about this, and we always talk about it in the context of what what should school officials do? Do they cancel school too much, etc.? One of the, the underlying subtexts of any conversation we have is the fact that people will always say, well, when we catch these, whoever is involved, we have to throw the book at them. And, and I agree with that because the, the truth of the matter is, unless you have a deterrent, unless people know that there is going to be a penalty for doing this stuff, well, there's just encouragement to do it. They think they're clever. They think they're cute. They want to get out of a test. Whatever, you know, there needs to be an appropriate penalty. So we always talk about when they catch these kids that do this, we, we have to come down on them like a ton of bricks. All right. Well, let's talk about what happened at Oconomowoc High School on Tuesday, October 3rd. That morning, an Oconomowoc High School student reported to the school's administration that two individuals who were not Oconomowoc High School students had posted on Snapchat a video of them in masks holding up what appeared to be guns. They were later determined to be pellet guns, but they appeared to be guns. And in the Snapchat, the video says, don't come to school tomorrow. So you've got People, now post this video, two kids, two people in masks carrying what purports to be guns saying don't come to school tomorrow. Administrators contacted police. At no point was the school locked down, but they they did have an officer that was posted at the school. One of the individuals in the video turns out to be a 19-year-old guy, uh, 19-year-old guy, who named Tyler Zimmer. He's now 20 years old. He was charged the following day in Waukesha County Circuit Court with disorderly conduct for his role in the incident. According to the criminal complaint, the student who reported the incident confronted Zimmer about it, saying they were afraid to go to school after watching it. Uh, Zimmer reportedly told the student the video was an immature joke. 
don't tell anybody about it. Um, he wrote in a statement to police that although it wasn't his intention, he did understand that this could be perceived as a threat. Okay, it wasn't his intention. Let me see. I'm going to put a mask on. I'm going to hold what people might believe is a gun, and I'm going to say, don't come to school tomorrow. So Zimmer says, um, although it wasn't his intention, he did understand that it could be perceived as a threat. Okay. Um, And could have caused the school to close or have to be evacuated. Uh, The complaint says officers went to Zimmer's house, arrested him after questioning about the incident. Um, The second suspect, one of his friends, presumably the other guy in the video, allegedly um, came to the police. We had determined during the course of our investigation, this is what the cops say, that basically they were just two guys screwing around. All right. With the current, this is the police statement, with the current environment and everything else, that's the last thing you want to do right now. Yeah, like stand in an airport line screaming, I've got a bomb in my suitcase. Um, Even though they say they were trying to have fun or be fun, we're going to take it seriously and protect the safety of our students at the school. Um, They sent a letter to the parents saying the threat was investigated, um, and they determined the school would be safe. Okay, so they, they they catch the kid that does it gets charged with a misdemeanor. All right? So that all goes through. He appears in court the other day. Um, and he appears in front of a Waukesha County judge, Maria Lazar. He was convicted of a, of a misdemeanor. So here's the way the Journal Sentinel reports this. An Oconomowoc man who threatened a shooting at Oconomowoc High School on social media will not serve any jail time for the offense. But, 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 has to complete 40 hours of community service, a Waukesha County judge ruled. That was the punishment Judge Maria Lazar handed down to 20-year-old Tyler Zimmer. Court records show Lazar stayed a combined 32-day jail term for Zimmer in favor of a year of probation He pled guilty to one count of misdemeanor disorderly conduct the same day. The conditions of that probation include the 40 hours of community service, which we will have to serve with the Oconomowoc Police Department or another agency determined to be appropriate. He must also complete a hunter safety course, according to court records. All right. So this is one where it gets convicted of the misdemeanor, not a day in jail, put on probation, told don't do it again, and 40 hours of community service. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Your reaction to that sentence. Too harsh, too light, or just about right? I will tell you where I come down on this, and we will discuss in just a minute. But, all right, the guy makes a video wearing a mask holding what appears to be a firearm, it turns out to be a pellet gun, and saying, uh, you know, you better not come to school tomorrow. All right. He said, well, I, I guess I understand how people could consider it to be a threat. He walks away with a year of probation and community service. 414-799-1620. It's 119. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 122, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, so the kid makes this video essentially threatening students at the school 
Um, it, he's, he's caught immediately. The school doesn't close, but they have an extra police officer there. Confesses that he did it. He shows up in front of a Waukesha County Circuit judge after pleading either guilty or no contest to a misdemeanor. Doesn't get a day of jail time. Gets 40 hours of community service. That sound you hear is me slapping my wrist. 40 hours of community service and a year of probation, and he has to take a hunter safety course, whatever the heck that's all about. 414-799-1620. Let me start off this conversation by saying, has the judge lost her mind? I mean, seriously. You know, we talk about this all the time. We say when we catch people, we've got to deal with this seriously. This is something that you don't fool around with. It's not funny it's not a joke it's a big deal and then when you catch people who are doing these type of things well you treat it like it's a joke 414-799-1620 let's start with lisa in mcguanago lisa hello yeah i will just say what i think and then i'll let you discuss and i'll hang up but i just think it's crazy um you know some kids who were walking along the railroad tracks just kind of crossing it and walking home and they got um, pretty much the same thing, um, just didn't really think they were doing anything wrong and pretty much got the same thing without the probation. So we'll let it go with that. So. Yeah, no, no thanks. Thank I mean, I mean, it, it's one of these things where, look, the bottom line is there, there's all sorts of reasons why you impose sentences, one of which is to punish people. Another one is to deter others. I find it almost impossible to believe that a sentence like this acts as any sort of deterrent at all when you have people who make these type of threats and, and the, the guy that did this 19 years old at the time I mean, this isn't like some 12 or 13 year old I mean this is somebody who's 19 years old you you know you put on you put on a mask and you put something out on social media essentially saying a uh, post on snapchat a video saying don't come to school tomorrow well what the heck is that supposed to mean it's designed to try to scare people. It's not funny. And when you come out, when you don't hold people accountable, and I'm sorry, look, am I arguing that the guy should go to jail for prison for 10 years? No. But, you know, couple weeks, 30 days as a guest of Waukesha County, that would at least have sent some sort of message that we take this seriously instead of, well, all right, we're going to give you a break. No, when you do stuff like this, you don't deserve breaks. People should know that you can't do this and get away with it. Mike in Burlington. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, you know, I look at this, and I, I hear, we hear this stuff over and over again. This kind of thing is not going to end. It will never end until people are held accountable for their actions. I mean, there's no penalty. They, Like you said, you know, they... they they tell people, well, you know, we we got to protect people. We got to do this. We got to do that. And then when they do catch them, nothing. Liberal, uh, bleeding heart pe- judges let them go with nothing. And then if something does happen, it's the gun laws problem. It's <laughs> yeah. the guns problem. It's not the guns problem. It's the fact that nobody's held accountable for right. their actions and what they do. Right. No, you're, you think they, they, and that's the underlying problem. And whether it's whether it's threats on Snapchat that reasonable people would be interpreted as threats against the school or whether it's then more serious stuff or well, different stuff that's also serious like like car theft or whatever, there, there isn't a degree of accountability. And I guess you, you we can't have it both ways. I and, and maybe this is just my frustration with this whole issue, but you know, this happens on a regular basis. You have some punk 
that thinks it's going to be a joke or thinks it's going to be funny to, to make the threat, whether it's calling in the bomb threat or, here, let's put masks on and let's pose with, you know, fake guns and, and let's put this video that, out there. And if people see it, then we're going to say, well, we just thought that this was a joke. And, and it's not a joke. But if you treat it like a joke, and, and look, here, here's the thing. I, I was critical of Ed Flynn, the former police chief, and that, that stupid chase policy that they had where they let people drive away. Well, one of the things that Flynn said, and I'll give him some credit, he said, well, part of the problem is, why do we chase? Because when we catch them, if it's juveniles or even if it's adults, almost nothing happens. If it's juveniles, they're back. They run away from us at 95 or 100 miles an hour, and they're back out on the streets in 12 hours. So why put people's lives in danger? Why put our cops' lives in danger by chasing when you've got judges that are going to be soft on on this? And candidly, this is the same sort of thing. Now, again, it's not the chase policy, but why spend all these resources? Why do we talk about we're going to take this seriously and we're going to come down like a house of car? We're going to come down like a ton of bricks on whoever we catch doing this. And then when you catch somebody who does something like this, it's, well, all right, I'm going to give you 32 days in jail, sentence suspended. And here, be on probation and do 40 hours of community service. It's less than a joke. And, you know, I mean, I guess... Maybe this is the type of thing that you can come to expect in Milwaukee County, but this is Waukesha County. You would think that in Waukesha County, I don't know, maybe the community would think that this is a bigger deal than apparently this one particular judge thinks. It's 128. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 135. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The immigration debate continues to heat up in our nation's capital and along our southern border, and political divides are widening. John McCure... He's back, and he goes live to Washington with the latest, the 350 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Okay, Gru, you don't know who Trisha is, but but Trisha, Trisha's a friend of mine. And Trisha, well, I, I guess maybe in another life you'd call her a soccer mom, but we don't use that term anymore. But, but Trisha is kind of my sounding board on certain issues. Um, Trisha, for example, aware of politics but not obsessed with politics. You know, Trish is the kind of person that, you know, wakes up in the morning and turns on turns on Good Morning America, but but you know, watches the news headlines, but really watches it kind of for the celebrity interviews. You know, that that that's it. And a lot of common sense. Trisha, for example, um finds on a personal level President Trump to, well, kind of be unappealing. He's a pig. But at the same time, she hated Hillary Clinton. Just couldn't stand Hillary Clinton at all. But again, kind of apolitical, um, doesn't like a lot of President Trump's personal characteristics, but at the same time, likes the fact that, you know, she her job is secure, likes the fact that her husband's job is secure, feels good about the economy, feels good about, in general, kind of the direction of where the country is going. You know, that, and, and she's kind of my sounding board. Like I say, not some hardcore, you know, conservative, not some hardcore lefty, just actually one of your your average type of people for whom all right politics is something that's interesting to them but it's not a blood sport they have a regular life and, and trisha is kind of one of my sounding boards on, on things and it, actually we were discussing this whole thing at the border now yesterday i was doing a segment on this and the, the premise of my segment was for for all the intense coverage of the separation of people who are coming into this country illegally, and that's the thing, you know. If you know, we're, we're blaming 
We're blaming the Trump administration. We're blaming the Democrats. We're blaming the Republicans or whatever. My my basic premise is all that blame is misplaced. The reason this is a problem is that you have people who are making the decision to come into this country illegally and they're bringing their children along. I mean, that that's the underlying problem here. And, of course, the analogy is if you decide you're going to go out and rob a bank, well, all right, b- because you might have two kids at home, it's not that you're not going to be held accountable and you're not going to go to jail. No, I mean, that's that's just the decision that's made. And so, I mean, I think that is kind of the analogous situation. This is, to the extent it is a quote-unquote crisis, it is a crisis, and this is at least my opinion, it, it starts and ends with the fact that you have people who have made the decision to illegally come into the country in the first place. So, okay, I'm having this conversation with Tricia, who, again, is one of my sounding boards, and she said, you know, Jeff, I understand what you're saying, and you're absolutely 100% right. It starts with, all right, if the mom and dad, if they don't come into this country illegally and commit the crime, and then they don't bring the kids along with them, this doesn't happen. It's not a problem. You are right. I understand that. But she says to me, at the same time, I'm watching every time I turn on the TV news, all I see is these kids who have been separated from their parents. And they're crying and they're screaming. And she says, my heart goes out to them. And I know intellectually, I know what you're saying. I know it's the parents who have caused this problem. I get all that. But then I see these pictures of these little kids who've now been separated from their parents. They don't know what is going on. And it ends up breaking my heart. And we just can't do this. Her comment to me was, this is just wrong. It's it's just wrong to separate the parents. And so, I mean, my response is, well, again, it's the parents that are breaking the law. She said, I understand that. I know it. It's the parents that are breaking the law, but it's wrong to separate the children from the parents. To which my question is then, well, well what do you end up doing? I mean, explain to me how you, you handle this, because if you simply if you simply let the parents go, give them a, give them a court date, and say, okay, come back and show up 30 days from now for your deportation hearings, they're not going to show up, or at least a good portion of them aren't going to show up. They're just going to disappear into the ether in this country, and we're essentially sending a message that if you want to be able to come into this country illegally, just bring along a couple children that might be yours or might be somebody else's, bring them in tow, and, and you're going to be able to come in illegally. And Tricia says, I know that, I get it, I understand intellectually where you are coming from, but I see these pictures on television of the children who have been separated from their parents, and they're in one place and the parents are another, and it's just wrong. We as a country cannot do that. And I said, well, okay, well, what's, what is the answer? She said, the answer is, I don't know, but we have to keep the whole family structure together. And even if that means letting people just kind of wander into the country, even if that means that this is the way that you're going to be able to enter the country illegally, Yes, we, we have to do it. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. That's my friend Trisha. And like I say, Trisha is my sounding board on, on some of these issues, saying that she understands all the arguments about how it's the people that are coming into the country that are abusing the system. But her point is it's the kids that are suffering from this and that we as a kind, compassionate country 
cannot allow that to happen. And if it means that we have to let mom and dad go until we can figure out some building facilities or whatever that allow us to keep the families together, um, we have to do it. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How do we deal with this very real problem? And this is an open-ended issue. And I and and I mean I I appreciate this. And again, like I say, my friend Trisha is one of my sounding boards because I, I find her to be a, a reasonable woman. And her just visceral reaction is, all right, the parents might be doing wrong, but but we can't have these kids punished in this way. How do we deal with this? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. It's 142. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 146, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Now, now here, here's kind of a, let's cut through the, 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 all the static on this issue. Under Barack Obama, um, what happened is when you had the, the surge of people illegally crossing the border and bringing, bring their kids along, what we did was we set up family detention centers where the children and the parents could be held together. But then the Obama administration got sued, and a federal judge said, nope, you, you can't legally do that. Children cannot be detained with their parents in these detention centers. So as a result, what happened is Obama administration officials then would release everybody pending the resolution of the claim for asylum. All right, you, you want asylum? It's going to take us a while to process this. Here, we're just going to release you. But the problem is, then they would release the entire family, and the parents never show up. They just kind of disappear into the ether. And this becomes this major exception for people to come into the country illegally and then just to disappear. Well, all right, that has now resulted in the Trump administration saying, no, we're, we're not going to just release people. We're going to hold the people who come into this country illegally, and we're going to process the asylum requests. They're asking for that, um, but we're going to hold them. We're not just going to release them, but under the law, we can't hold them with the kids, so we're going to have to separate the families. And again, my friend Trish, is going, I just, it's just wrong. It's, it's wrong to separate these kids from their parents, and I understand that's the optics, but, but what do you do? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Ellen in Merton. Hi, Ellen. Hi there. Um, I totally agree with you. I'm frustrated with America and, and the way we always blame people who aren't really at fault for, the, for what's going on. We need to blame the parents. My job, my profession is working with young children and is working. I do have some illegal immigrants that are also in our program. I love them dearly. I love the kids. But darn it, we need to put our foot down and say, America wants to be good again. We have borders. We need to support our borders. And we need to blame the parents for bringing those kids over. And it's not America that's, that's doing this to them. It's the, it's the parents. But okay, but what do you, what, what do we, what do we do as a practical matter? You've got somebody from Central America who knows all this, but decides, what the heck? I'm coming across the border. I've got a couple of my kids in tow. Do we, do do we continue separating the kids and then get the optics of the children who are taken from their parents and are crying as they're, you know, essentially wards of the state? Is there, if there is no way to keep the families together, then we have to separate them. We have to, we have to do something for America. We just have to. And I know it, it tears at my heartstrings. Like I said, my profession is working with these young children, and some of them, again, are illegal immigrants. And I love them. I love them so much. And they're hard workers, the ones that I work with. But 
darn, we got to do something, and I, I we just have to stick to it. Thanks to call. I appreciate it. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Well, I mean, it appears that we're losing the political will to stick to it, and I and I get it. That's why I started with my story of Tricia, who's uh, again real common sense sort of person, not conservative, not liberal, but who looks at this and says, "Oh, we're taking children away from their parents. We are punishing the kids." Because of the, the sins of the parents, if you want to use that phrase. But we, we just can't punish the kids. Kathy in Milwaukee. Kathy, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi, Kathy. Um, I'm also wondering if part of it isn't the fact that those that scream the loudest get heard the most. And those of us that think we should continue with the status quo aren't speaking up. Um, yeah. I agree with the first caller that we need to continue doing what we're doing. It's not fair to America to let all of the illegals just enter the country because they have their kids with. Now, in fairness, this is this isn't everybody illegal. Well, this, this is, I mean, this policy applies to people who come in and they're asking for asylum. But that's, I mean, that's thousands and thousands of people, and it and it takes a while to process these asylum. Comp- things and sometimes you get in a lot of times that you don't so there's no guarantee that you're going to be accepted so what's your what is your do you have a solution to this kathy i think if the parents voluntarily want to stay with their kids they can stay with them um but otherwise they have to be separated and they can stay where they're at yeah um thanks i mean i i mean i i think there there's a to me there's a couple things that need to happen if I mean, and, and it does start with, with Congress. I mean, yes, it is true that the president could simply say, we're going to continue the approach of the Obama administration at the end, and, and we are going to just let people melt into society. The people who come in requesting for asylum, we're just going to let them go. And, and I guess you, you could do that. Now, that's not President Trump's nature, and it's not what the law says. I think there's a couple things that need to be done, like right away, but you're not going to get it through Congress. Number one is you need to change the law to specifically say that parents and children under these circumstances who come into this country illegally requesting asylum can be housed together. All right? So you need the law to say that. Then, of course, you need the facilities where you're going to put them because you're not going to put the kids in a jail cell or something like that. And, and we're kind of we're short on that. So there's not a short solution. Now, the other alternative in a short it, it seems to me there's only really two real three realistic alternatives. One is just let people go, continue the system. And essentially, if you come into this country with the kids, that's the way that you're going to be able to get in the country illegally. Second is pass laws like I've talked about. Or the third might be just, we're, we're not going to let you into the country. You know, you get to the border. If we catch you coming in illegally, we're putting you on a bus, we're turning around, and, and we're sending you back across the border. And if you want to make the asylum request, you got to make it when you get to the border. But once you, we're not going to let you in. And if you come in, we're going to turn around and we're going to send you back. That might be the short-term solution to this whole problem. But I understand that that's that that's not politically palatable. Marie in West Dallas. Marie, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. I'm sorry I didn't hear what you said because I was on the phone with your screener, but I agree 100% with the first two women because we have to start watching out for America. We, it, we, it's gotten to the point where America can't even afford to feed and clothe and health care and everything for the the children that are here legally and born and raised here, 
And my gosh, are we the only country that can offer a better life to these people? Is America the only country? And, well, and the answer is is no. You wouldn't think so. I mean, a, a number of the people who show up at the border, for example, asking for asylum here, I mean, they've traveled through Mexico. They could stay in Mexico if they wanted, but they don't. They, they want to come to the United States for whatever reason. I, I guess my problem is just because you have children, the, should you get a special exception? Should you get special treatment? Should the children be essentially the anchor that gets you in? And, and I'm, I'm having a tough time with that. But I don't like separating kids any more than anybody else does. I don't either. I worked with kids for a long time. I love kids. But, but you know, there's got to be a line somewhere and sometime. Mm-hmm. We cannot just let everybody come in illegally and say, well, here, we're going to close you and feed you and give you health care when we can't even get it for ourselves. Yeah, well, thanks. For, I mean, again, I, here's the, 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 simple, the simple solution, although it doesn't immediately solve the problem, but the simple solution is for the Republicans and Democrats to get together and pass a law which allows specifically the, the parents to be housed, to be detained with their children. Right now, it, it is... There's court rulings that say, no, you pass a law that allows that. Now, again, that then creates the issue of what the facilities are going to be. And so, I mean, that's the long-term solution to this. Um, or you just let people go into the into the melt, melt into the country. And I don't think that's an answer. So the long-term solution is let the parents and the children be housed together while the asylum thing is going to be passed out. Um, short of that, I, I really think that what they're going to have to do is just uh, it starts sending people back, not letting people come in and saying, all right, if you want to make an asylum claim, you got to do it before you come into the country. And I understand some people are going to think that's cruel as well, but at the end of the day, we do have to get control of our borders because many of the people who are coming in looking for asylum are have legitimate claims for asylum, and they'll be processed accordingly. But the concern is, you know, what about the people who are just using that as a dodge to try to get into this country? And merely because they have kids with them, should that be the way they go about it? My answer would be no, it, it's not. But I understand the politics of this. I understand the optics of it. And again, when my friend Trisha is the one saying, well, I just hate seeing these, these images on the news. It tells you that it's an issue that needs to be grappled with. I'm not sure anybody in Congress is serious about dealing with it, though, because the Democrats think that this is a winning issue that might help them pick up seats in the midterms. The Trump administration has dug in its heels because they've taken this position on immigration that they think is a winner among their voters. To me, it's a simple solution. Congress gets its act together. You pass the law, and you keep the families together, but you don't release them into the country. That's what I would do if I were king, but I'm not king. 157, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 208, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, my question is, do we just live with it? For those of you who might be new to the area or might have checked out on the whole way we handle rainwater, stormwater, sewage after a monster storm like yesterday. But let's kind of review the bidding a little bit. And, and by the way, yesterday it rained like heck. I was um, 
I, I left the studio a little bit after 3 o'clock yesterday, and it was just starting to sprinkle. By the time I got about a quarter mile to the west on my way home, I mean, it was like, I mean, the, the heavens just opened up and just driving rain. I mean, get ready for Noah to build a boat and us to start lining up the animals two by two. Um, and around here, there was that effect that they call training where there were certain areas that just got pummeled. Whitefish Bay got four inches of rain in a very short period of time. Shorewood got four inches um, along Capitol Drive, 35th and Capitol, flooded. I mean, cars in the intersection, people having to swim out. I mean, the reality was that it just, no matter how we make preparations, when you get these monster rainstorms that just dump Tons of money in a tons of money, tons of rain in a hurry. That that we're we're just not going to be we're not able to deal with that, you know, very well. Now this as as bad as this was yesterday, it was nothing compared to uh, back in 2010. And if you were living around here back in 2010, you you know we got nine inches of rain in a very short period of time. You had roads that were collapsing. You had monster basement flooding. And I understand there was a little bit of flooding yesterday, but but not necessarily as bad as it was. And after 2010, a lot of local communities have kind of made, taken steps to try to reduce and minimize the problems. But still, again, when you get all this rain in a short period of time, there's limitations as to what can happen. Now, if you're new to the area, let's review the bidding for a little bit. In the city of Milwaukee and in parts of Shorewood, they have what they call a combined sewer system. What that means is all the rainwater that, that comes in, that the torrential downpours, that gets routed into the same sewer system that the sanitary sewer system is. In other words, the, your bathtub, your bathwater, the toilet water, with all the stuff in it, it all gets combined together, hence the term combined sewer system. As a general rule, the the rainwater, in in many communities around here, the rainwater is separate. It It goes into the storm sewer and then ultimately doesn't get treated, just gets ultimately routed into rivers or streams or lakes. Storm water doesn't need to be treated. Now, it's not a bad thing to treat it because when the wane comes down and it goes across the pavements or your driveways, it does pick up certain chemicals. So it's not a bad thing to treat it, but it doesn't have to be. Obviously, the stuff from the sanitary sewers, you know, the stuff from your toilets, that needs, in fact, to be treated. So in a portion of Milwaukee and in a portion of Shorewood, there is a combined sewer system. So what happens is when you get torrential rains, before we had the deep tunnel, which went into the first year for the deep tunnel was like 1994, what would happen is you would constantly have overflows because it would rain hard, and in order to try to prevent backups into people's basements, we would just dump it all into Lake Michigan. Now, there were two ways we could have handled this back in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. We could have, as a region, done what we did, which was build this deep tunnel, which essentially houses. You get all the water that comes down, and it goes in, and it's contained in a deep tunnel, and ultimately that is that is treated. The problem is, with the deep tunnel, is you can never build a tunnel that's deep enough or has enough capacity to handle these monster rainstorms. 
So what happens is when you get all this rain like we got yesterday, in order to prevent stuff from backing up into people's basements, what we end up doing is we just, they and I get it, I understand why MMSD does this. They don't want it to back up into people's basements, so they just dump untreated stormwater mixed with the stuff from the sanitary sewers into Lake Michigan. All right, that's that's the dumping, and they dumped a lot yesterday. They haven't told us exactly how much, but they dumped a lot because the deep tunnel was filling up, and so they really had, again, no choice. It's not like the deep tunnel doesn't work. It it, it does, but it doesn't work. It doesn't. It's not a hundred percent because again, you can't build a tunnel that's big enough to handle again the, the monster type of rainfalls. The other thing that we could have done collectively years and years ago, is we could have, I, I think, really solved the problem by separating the storm sewers from the sanitary sewers. If you separated that, there wouldn't really be a need for a, a deep tunnel because you got the storm sewer, the sanitary sewers, well, they're, you know, when, when there's pouring rain, they're probably not going to overflow. Um, I understand sometimes you get some leaking into them from groundwater and stuff, but again, it's the stormwater that's pouring in that overwhelms the system. Now, why didn't we separate the combined sewers in Milwaukee and Shorewood? Well, that's because it would be extremely expensive to do that house by house. The estimates were it could cost as much as four B as in billion dollars. And if you just did it in Milwaukee and Shorewood, well, then the people in Milwaukee and Shorewood would have to pay for it, and you know it would cost homeowners just a fortune. So the idea was... Let's spread this out. Let's let's have the Metropolitan Milwaukee Sewage District, and we'll build the deep tunnel, and we'll spread the cost of the deep tunnel out among you know everybody, including the, the suburbs. All right. So that's what we've done. The deep tunnel works, but it's not perfect. And on any given year, you might have two or three of these overflows, like we had yesterday, where. You've got all this untreated water, including all the stuff that comes from people's toilets and stuff that's being dumped into Lake Michigan. It's always going to happen the way we have the system. Now, again, it, it's it's not the fault of the people at MMSD. They're, they're working with what they have. And when we made the decision to go with the deep tunnel, we pretty much guaranteed that there'd be a lot fewer overflow situations than without it. But, of course, we spent a billion dollars. You would expect if you spend a billion dollars, the situation would be a lot better. But it, but it's not a perfect solution. I mean, seriously, you're probably not going to ultimately solve the overflow problem until you're ready to bite the bullet and separate the storm sewers from the sanitary sewers in a good portion of Milwaukee and in, in Shorewood. But, again, you're talking about billions of dollars. And until and unless you do that, at least in my opinion, we're still going to have the inevitable dumpings like occurred yesterday when we get these monumental rainfalls. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is not a criticism of MMSD. It, it's just not. I think they have a an effective but a non-perfect system. Um, and, and that's just the way it was set up. It works most of the time. It doesn't work when you have torrential rainfalls like you had yesterday. And we get those from time to time. So I guess here is is my question. This is what I want to discuss. 
Are we willing to live with dumping untreated sewage into Lake Michigan a couple times a year? Now, if you were out on your boat and you decided to empty your porta potty into the lake, I guarantee you, if you got caught, you would be looking at a nasty, nasty fine. But yet, you know, we have essentially legalized dumping. And I don't fault the sewage district for doing it. Like I say, their alternative, they're looking, there's all this rain coming down. You've got all this untreated stuff that's in there, the stormwater that's mixed in with the stuff from people's toilets. And they're looking at the tunnel filling up and up and up. And once it fills up, it's got nowhere to go but back into people's basements. You can't allow that to happen. So, boom, we open the gates and we dump it into Lake Michigan or the, the streams or wherever. I, it's, I get why they do it. I don't fault them for doing it. If it were me, yeah, my choice was causing millions and millions of dollars of damage by allowing stuff to back up into people's basements or dumping it out into Lake Michigan. I'm going to dump it. But I guess the question is, are we willing to live with this? Or is it time to start saying, you know, we need to fix this problem. And by fixing the problem, it means people who live in Milwaukee and in Shorewood are going to have to recognize that this is what's going to have to happen. We're going to have to separate the systems to, again, I don't know that that's going to guarantee that you're never going to have a dumping, but it pretty much, I I think, will guarantee that you're not going to have as many dumpings as we have. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Jeff in Milwaukee. Jeff, good afternoon. You know, there's a bigger problem. They have to separate the system. And we fix basements for a living. And the problem is, is a lot of homes have what they call a Palmer valve, which is a brass flap and a right. side up a drain, and it goes down. And Well, they're making the homeowners take those out if you do any drain. Now, one valve, you have to replace that Palmer valve. And the problem with that is now you're putting a bucket in the ground with a sump pump and pumping the, the, the water into their backyards and flooding their backyards. If you separate the system, that would solve the problem for all homeowners that, that have to do that, and a Palmer valve would be fine. The only reason they're taking them out is because they don't want it in their deep tunnel project. Right, right. And, and, and you know, we're, and we're never, I guess, and, and if you work with this, you, you know more than me, but it seems to me we're never going to solve this problem until we recognize that it's that combined sewer system that is the principal cause of us having to dump. Because, again, the, the stormwater, is it bad to treat it? No. Does it need to be treated? No. Let that flow into the streams, and then you're not going to have the problem. The problem is when it's that wastewater, when it's the stuff from people's toilets that gets dumped into Lake Michigan, that's where you really have the issue. No, absolutely. And, again, there's a lot more problems than just the rainwater going into the storm sewers. It's, it's a big problem for every homeowner that, that goes into a split system. I mean, it's, you're pumping water into a backyard. If the, sub, if the power fails, your basement floods. It's a terrible 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 thing that they're making homeowners do right now thanks to call and, and you know it, it could have been avoided decades ago but it, but again the powers that be decided we we don't want to address the direct cause of the problem because that means it's going to be shorewood and milwaukee that are going to have to pay the lion's share if not all of it so we, we spread it around we come up with this tunnel idea to act as a storage facility and like i say the, the deep tunnel works to an extent it, it's dramatically reduced the number of dumpings. But again, my point is it cost a billion dollars. I would hope it would dramatically reduce it. The folks that run the deep tunnel say, well, we never guarantee it was going to be 100%. And I don't quite remember that being out there when we were having the discussion. But okay, I'll accept that. But the question becomes, two or three times a year, are we willing to accept untreated sewage 
being dumped into Lake Michigan. And that's going to be the reality. That's going to be what happens unless and until we bite the bullet and say, we've got to separate these sewer systems, period, because we're just not going to tolerate this. And I don't know if we have the political will to do that around here, but that's the underlying problem. And, you know, I don't fault MMSD. Like I say, they they have no choice. They've got a system that works most of the time but doesn't work in extreme situations or at least doesn't work to the extent it's designed to prevent dumping. 221, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 224, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The world's largest music festival is right around the corner, and we want to send you there all this week. During Wisconsin's Morning News, Gene Miller will be giving away four packs of tickets to the big gig. Even if you don't win, don't forget to come see us at the Gruber Law Office's Sports Zone. We'll be broadcasting live throughout the entire run of the festival. I think I'm down there four or five days, so be sure and stop off and say hello. Mike in Waukesha. Hi, Mike. Mike? Mike, Mike, Mike. Okay, lost Mike there. 414-799-1620. Well, I, I don't know there's much more to say here. Let's check out the uh, text line. It's just kind of exploded on, you know, th- this issue. And, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not picking on the deep tunnel. I, I just... It was a decision that we ended up, we being the community, ended up making because essentially Milwaukee, the city of, had had enough clout to say, all right, let's treat this as a regional issue instead of treating it as what was really a primarily Milwaukee and Shorewood issue, and let's go the deep tunnel route instead of addressing the underlying problem and, and separating the sewers. But, you know, we're always going to be doing this until we until we separate the sewers. Uh, let's see, some of our texts. Largest freshwater resource in the world. This is legalized pollution, and we wonder why the beaches get closed. It's not a good idea. Another text. Fix it now. Another text. They have to be updating these sewers. Why can't they separate them a little at a time? Yeah, there, there should have been, since 1994, there should have been an ongoing project. If you didn't want to eat, if we didn't want to eat all the cost of separating the sewers at once, I mean, there there should be an ongoing process. Every time there's renovations done, this should have been going on for the last 25 years, constantly separating the the sewers as you're doing work or street work or whatever, simply because, yes, it's going to add to the cost, but if we want to solve this problem long-term, that's what we end up having to do. So, again, I, 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 I don't fault MMSD, but there's only so much you can do. And as somebody who lives around here and appreciates all the folks out there who are so concerned about the environment, I mean, where is the outrage when we see, you know, billions of gallons of untreated wastewater? And again, it's, it's, it's not all crap. I mean, but it's, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. If you're taking a bath, for example, you don't want a floater in your bathtub. It, that's just the reality of it. it you know, the MMSD say, well, most of the stuff is treated. Well, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, I, I don't know. If, if I'm a swimming pool, if I'm in a swimming pool and there's hundreds and hundreds of gallons of water in there, all right, and, and you've got the little floater that's there, I don't want to be in that pool. I mean, that's just the reality. So don't tell me that it's only a small percentage of the stuff that's untreated. It's like, oh, you know, you, you shouldn't be putting this into Lake Michigan. But this is going to continue to happen until we bite the bullet and separate these sewers once and for all. And if that means people who live in Milwaukee have to come up with a way to pay for it, sorry, not, well, sorry, that part isn't my problem. 
Um, for everybody who lives in the region, though, and uses the lake, it is their problem. 227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 234, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Let's switch gears for a minute. Um, actually, right before the break, Melissa. I have Melissa Barclay. She's, she's a delightful lady. And she came in and she just said, I'm just kind of curious, Jeff, what do you do in your, what, what's your favorite pastime? And I said, well, I, I don't know. I, uh, I've been known to bet on horses and uh, I like to play golf and I, I like to read a, a lot. Um, and I'm, I'm also like an avid sports fan. I mean, as, as my wife will tell you, and she found out this, I, I think she should have known before she married, but, but she certainly knows afterwards. And, you know, it, it's kind of like you say, what sport does he like? And she says, well, it depends on what's on, you know, but, and she's, <clears throat> she's become a sports fan as well. You know, we go on to Packer games, you know, we go to Marquette games and, you know, we, we go to Brewer games and stuff. And I, I go to a lot of Brewer games, but I also, I, I, I watch and listen to Brewers games all the time to the point that, I kind of build my schedule around, you know, when the Brewers are going to be on the radio or on TV or, or whatever. So I, I am an avid fan. And when you have a year like this where they are playing well, three-game losing streak notwithstanding, it, it's it's just it's a lot of fun to watch the team. And I am obviously not alone. A Brewers attendance, uh, people who actually have paid money and go to the games, is up dramatically. To give you an idea, um, they play 35 home games. Um, 35 home games, there's, what, 81 home games over the year. So they've got a little more than, than half of the, their home schedule left. Um, this time last year, same number of dates, they were averaging 28,300 fans. That The total attendance last year, same number of games, 991,000. This year, the attendance... The average attendance is up by about 6,000. It's 34,300. So they're drawing about 6,000 more people per game, which is huge. Uh, overall attendance, you know, 1.2 million. And you, you got to expect that, you know, now that we're in the summer season, if they continue to play well, and I understand that's a, an if, um, you know, you could be looking at attendance theoretically that would push 3 million. Which, when you give, given the size of this market, is just an incredible sort of thing. Given the fact that you know the Milwaukee metropolitan market is so much smaller than a lot of the places, so this attendance story in Milwaukee is good. The attendance story in Houston, where the Astros arguably have the best team in Major League Baseball, that's good. But across Major League Baseball. The attendance story is not good. As a matter of fact, um, league-wide attendance is down 6.6% as of last Friday from that date last year. So down 6.6% and down 8.6% overall. This may be the largest single-season attendance drop since 1995, and that goes back to when um, after that was, there was a player strike in 1994, and fans were kind of like, well, to heck with everybody. They're not coming back. Um, Major League Baseball is looking, and again, who, who knows how it's going to be as the year you know plays out. But right now, they're looking at dramatic attendance drops. There are a handful of success stories, Milwaukee being one, Houston being another. Those are probably the two biggest ones. But in general, attendance is down dramatically in most places. Now, the easy explanation for this is 
The, the weather this spring has been awful. Lots of games rained out, lots of miserable conditions. And as somebody who remembers, you know, when the Brewers used to play at County Stadium, I can remember some of those games in April and May where you'd go to them, they'd play them, but they were just absolutely miserable. And the truth is, you know, we've got the dome now, so it doesn't matter. You know, you've got the retractable roof. You go there, you, you play, you know it's going to be a baseball game, and you know it's going to be relatively comfortable, regardless of what the weather is like outside. But there's a lot of teams that don't have that. So, obviously, the weather is something that affects attendance. But is that the be-all, end-all? All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. As somebody who... Again, one of my big pastimes is watching sports. I I think it's interesting that you see Major League Baseball, the games, this type of dramatic attendance drop. And again, that's not Milwaukee. Milwaukee fans are turning out big time. But across the board, I mean, there's just a ton of empty seats. And like I say, if this continues, it might be the biggest attendance drop since, again, after the strike season 20-plus years ago. So for you baseball fans, if you're a baseball fan, what is going on? Why is attendance down this dramatically? Is it just the weather, or are there other things going on? I've got my theory, and I'll share it with you, but I'm curious. Why is attendance down, not in Milwaukee, but elsewhere, so much? 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 240 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 244, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, we're talking sports for a couple minutes. Across Major League Baseball, attendance is down dramatically. It's down year to year, um, date to date, like over almost 7%, 8.6% down overall. Not in Milwaukee. Milwaukee, you know, people are turning out. It's a great Brewers team. But why do you think it's going on across Major League Baseball? Let's start with Josh on the south side. Hi, Josh. Hi. Um- I think it was a long time coming because it seems millennials and younger people just don't have attention spans. Mm-hmm. I, to, I, I liked it when I was younger too, but I, I lost interest. It's too long. And, and baseball for a lot of people is boring. So I think it's affecting. Now it's, it's easier when there's a lot. You can tailgate and there's a good team out there. But right. I think shift is to basketball, professional, and, and some other sports. Get soccer, but soccer is kind of boring too, in my opinion. But it's, it's, it's a <laughs> Yeah. The new uh, demographic kids played soccer for the last thirty years, so um, I think those people are growing. Plus, immigrants that are interested in that sport. Yeah, I mean, th- thanks for calling. I guess I, I mean, one of the problems that baseball has is that whole thing that you're talking about pace of play, and you know, some. And I, I mean, I've made this argument too. You I mean you go to some of these games and they end up being three and a half and four hours long, and, and I don't think people have that enough of attention span. So, pace of play has been a big deal, and they actually have picked up the pace of play a, a little bit. I think the average games are six minutes less or something, but still it, it doesn't change when you've got the four-hour game on you know, on a weeknight and you take the kids and they just, they just don't have that attention span. So I think that's an issue. Related to that, um, in some respects, I, I think – I think Major League Baseball, to me, is also somewhat, it's the victim of technology. Now, don't get me wrong, I love going to the ballpark. I, I do. This was the year, I said this before, uh, my best friend and I, we, we broke down and we bought a, 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 out of our own pockets, this isn't press pass or anything, you know, we, we bought, you know, a 20-pack of season tickets, and we go 
to most of the games together. Occasionally, you know, I'll take his ticket and take my wife or a friend, another friend, or, you know, his, his kid uses my ticket from time to time. But, you know, we're going to 20 games. And the and I love going to the ball game. I, I, just, I just do. But one of the things that I think for a casual fan going regularly that is a bit of a frustration is that you – it's so easy to watch a game at home. Everything's on TV. And, and I'm not just talking about, you know, the access to the refrigerator so you're not buying the $8 beers or not having to stand a line in the rest, restrooms. I'm talking about the whole thing with, with the replays and stuff like that. If you're watching a game on TV, all right, there's a close play or there's an exciting play or whatever. They're showing it. They're showing it a couple times and you see it in person. They don't do the replays. I mean, I think that they really need to concentrate on trying to Make it easy for people to come to the game and try to replicate that experience. So I think that's one of the, the things that you need to do to make it as fan-friendly as possible. And I think the Brewers do a pretty good job of that. But but across Major League Baseball, I, I think that's an issue. People say, well, why spend 20 30 40 $50 or whatever and buy a ticket when I can sit at home in my man cave, in my easy chair, I can see all the replays, I've got it there. That's a battle that Major League Baseball fights, and it's a battle that other sports fight as well. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. I think part of it is accessibility. I've been to Fenway and Wrigley Field, and they're much harder to, to get into than the Miller Park. Right. Right. So, I mean, some people are just saying it's just it's just not worth the effort to, to do it. Yeah, you know, you get home from work and you got all the stuff to do. And you, you know, they, a lot of people probably just don't want to go through the hassle. And and the people at Monroe Park can can make, even make it even easier for themselves if they use stuff like the preferred parking and, right. and my baseball app, so they can they can skip tickets, this ticket ticket buying as well. Yeah, no, it's, and thanks. In Miller Park, very very accessible. There's no question about it. Okay, got a text here. I think it's the price of concessions. It just keeps going up and up. Well, that's. I mean that that is a factor, and I've kind of railed about that. I, I I like I like craft beers, and I appreciate that there's going to be, for example, a premium that you're going to pay at the stadium. But there was Wisconsin craft beers where they're charging ten and twelve and fourteen dollars for a beer. That's a little bit that's a little bit hard to swallow for me. Okay, here's Dave. He says a lot of teams have dumped their payroll and talent. The new mentality of team general managers is if teams are out of contention. Trade players for prospects. It's the only way small park market teams like Kansas City did a few years ago can compete for a title. Then these teams stink and the fans don't turn out. Look at the White Sox and the Marlins. I actually think that Dave is, is on to something. I think the lack of competitive balance is one of the huge factors. I mean, look, let, let's be honest. I think the Brewers do a great job of, of being incredibly fan-friendly and reaching out to the community and stuff. But the truth is, if the team stunk, these attendance numbers would not be what they are. People are turning out because you've got a successful team that is what tied for first place right now, competing with the Chicago Cubs. If this team were 15 or 20 games below 500 instead of 12 games above 500 the attendance would be different. That's just the reality. And and it's, I mean, it's not an indictment. I'm the same way. When the team is in first place, when the team is really, really competitive, I'm paying more attention. There have been years where by Memorial Day, they're, they're really not in contention. And then if you're a baseball fan, you pay a little bit of attention, but it's different. And I think Dave is absolutely right. One of the big issues is competitive balance. A lot of teams are just tanking. 
There's a lot of teams out there that have decided we can't compete. And so what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of our established players. We're going to try to get prospects. And this was the recipe that the Chicago Cubs did for years. They went through three or four years where they just absolutely stunk. 100 losses or close to 100 losses with the idea that we're going to try to develop our farm system or develop these young players. And then when they mature, then we'll be good. And it worked for them. They won, you know, a, they won a World Series for the first time, you know, since whenever. But the problem is you have growing pains, and there's a lot of teams that are doing that, and they're just flat out not competitive. If you've got a third of the teams out of 30 that just aren't any good, and you know, okay, you might go and you might see some special play and maybe they're going to win, but day in, day out, they're going to lose and they're not going to be competitive. Well, it's tough to say, here, I'm going to drop you know, a couple hundred bucks and bring my family out more than once. You know, maybe we'll go out to a game so we, we do it once a year. But the key to getting good attendance isn't the person that comes back once a year. It's the person that goes, who might normally go one time a year. They decide, hey, this was fun. The Brewers are playing great. And they come five times a year. Or the person that goes five times a year decides to go ten times a year. That's how you build the attendance. And when the team is lousy, and there's a lot of teams in Major League Baseball that are just lousy, when there's not that competitive balance, that's what hurts you. So at the end of the day, if you were to ask me why this is going on, it's it, it's not the cost. That is a factor, but it's not necessarily the cost. It's not the fact necessarily that it's easy to stay home and watch the games on TV, although I think that that's a factor as well. I think it comes down to the lack of competitiveness. Milwaukee is doing great. And, again, if the Brewers continue to play the type of baseball they're playing, I, I think you're going to be looking at really huge attendance figures. I hope so. There's nothing more fun than to be at a baseball game. Um, I was there last Tuesday and Wednesday when they played the Cubs. you got, like, 40,000 people in the stands both times. That's great. I mean, it's just fun. There's an excitement that's going on. There's nothing that tops that experience of being there in person. But – the truth of the matter is, you know, you need a winning team to do that. And if the team's not winning, the home fans, except for the hardcores, just aren't going to turn out. And I don't know how you get that competitive balance back, given the strategy now is lose, 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 lose a lot, and then maybe you'll win somewhere down the line. It's 2.53. When we come back, we'll find out what John and Melissa have on their minds. Stick around.